invite you this time to turn your Bibles to page 888, where you will find Psalm 50, our scripture passage for this morning. As you turn there, I'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word. May it, Lord, be grace and mercy to us. May we come away from this, your preaching, the preaching of your word, with the gift of uh, the grace that we stand in need of. Um, and um, may we know more neatly who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. And you thought I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. J.I. Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, writes this. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective. Something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? But he also adds the flip side. Of that coin. 
What matters supremely, therefore, is not, he says, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it. The fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. To know God and to be known by him. Well, why do I open the sermon this morning with these important and deeply comforting facts. Well, because Psalm 50 is what you would call a prophetic psalm. Now, granted, we understand that all the psalms are prophetic because they are all the inspired words of God. And many of them speak about the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, and give allusions to his kingdom and his people. But Psalm 50 is unique in the sense that here, God speaks directly to us. When Asaph, or one of the sons of Asaph, those that David put in charge of writing music in the temple of God, scribed these words, they wrote down what they were saying from the perspective of God. God says this. Said it to the people of Israel back many, many years ago, and he says it to us this morning. And uh, overwhelmingly, what Psalm 50 is talking about is worship. And what is it that God wants from his people? Well, that's why our theme this morning is God needs nothing but wants our hearts. God needs nothing but wants our hearts. Wants our hearts. There's three points to the sermon this morning. The first is the judge summons. You can see Psalm 50 is almost like a courtroom picture, a courtroom moment. When God is bringing these charges against his people, he's the judge. And the judge summons his people to the courtroom to speak to them with the words that he has to say. Um, the second point is the judge corrects sacrifice, sacrifices. And the third point is the judge rebukes hypocrites. So let's look at that first point, the judge summons. An interesting note to be said about this is in verse 1, we have these three names of God. The Mighty One, and then El, God, and then the Lord, the covenant name. Um, so the Mighty One is a phrase only used one other place in Scripture. It's in Joshua when um, the tribes that lived on the other side of the Jordan River went off to go back to live where they were living, and they set up an altar. And the other tribes of Israel that were in the Promised Land believed that they had set up an idol. And so they went to confront them and to, to say, what have you done? And those tribes, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Reuben, um, they said, we call upon the Mighty One to intercede between us. And so that is also an uh, allusion to the courtroom 
seen. Um, God, El, is, is the general name for God, but the psalmist wants to make sure that we know specifically who we're dealing with here. And so he uses the, the covenantal term for uh, God that the people of Israel have, Yahweh, the Lord. And it is this God that speaks and summons the earth. He calls upon the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. He calls upon everything in the heavens above to, uh, to call the people of God to gather into the courtroom to hear what the judge has to say. And this is who this judge is. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heaven above and the earth that he may judge his people. And he says, gather to me my consecrated ones. He's talking about his covenant people. The term consecrated ones, interestingly enough, has the same root that that word that we talked about last week, hesed, has. These are his hesed ones, the ones that he is faithful to, the ones that are to be faithful to him, the ones that he's in covenant with. And the language here at the beginning of the psalm brings to mind uh, the exodus out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, you remember the picture of, of the, the fire and the smoke and the tempest on the top of the mountain and the people of Israel down there and how they entered into covenant with God in that moment. For the heavens proclaim His righteousness. God is the one who's coming as judge. And so we're to understand the, the bigness, the hugeness, the splendor, the power, the might, the fear, the terribleness of this judge. This is not just any judge. This is the judge who is the creator of all things and Lord over everything. This is the judge that summons his people together to speak to them. And so, then, we turn now to the case that this judge has against his people. And the first thing that this judge is doing is correcting the people of Israel's understanding of sacrifice. Their understanding of who God is. You see, even though this judge is terrible, even though this judge is powerful and mighty, and he comes with a fire around him and the tempest rages, this is a judge who seeks, who wants to be in relationship with his people. And if you're going to be in a relationship with someone, you have to know them. You have to know them. See, I, there was this running joke that went on with, between my wife and I, and it still happens today. When we first got together, we really liked these drinks that you could get at the gas station called Peace Teas. And they still have them around, the Peace Teas. And, um, and uh, I always used to get this, this one tea for her. Um, when I would go to the gas station anywhere and bring it to her, and, I, and I'd be like, hey, this flavor is your favorite flavor, right? Razzleberry tea is your favorite flavor? And she's like, no, it's not my favorite flavor. And so it was just a running joke. Every time I went to the store, I'd get her the one that wasn't her favorite flavor and act like it was 
her favorite flavor. Well, that's a running joke because when you're with someone, you're supposed to know them. You're supposed to know them. And so God is in covenant with his people. He's in relationship with his people. And what he's doing here, the first case he has against his people is they don't know him. And the expression, the particular expression of their lack of knowledge of who he is, the mighty one, El, Yahweh, is how they are treating um, the exercise of sacrifice in their worship. Okay? So this is the misunderstanding. God, the judge, gathers his people and he says, Hear all my people and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God your God. And he says, I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. And so here's a caveat. He's saying, I'm not telling you you shouldn't be doing these sacrifices. Because I'm the one that instructed you to do these sacrifices. Right? And we understand that in the Old Testament... God instituted sacrifices. God instituted a priesthood to point us to the reality that in order for sins to be forgiven, there must be the shedding of blood. To point us to the reality that there must be a sacrifice that intercedes between the people and God because we are sinners and he is holy. And in order for us to see that eventually Jesus Christ is going to come to be the sacrifice and the priest. Okay, But God instituted these things. And so he's not telling the people of Israel, you shouldn't be doing these things. No, he's saying, I'm glad that you're doing these things. I'm the one that commanded you to do these things. But he says, you have misunderstood. And God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. Every animal of the forest belongs to me and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? What is the Lord saying here? Well, if you understood the religious environment that the people of Israel were in, you would know that the act of sacrifice was not unique to the people of Israel. Many other pagan religions did things like sacrifices. And these other people groups and these pagan religions believed that their gods were hungry. And that's why you needed to offer sacrifices. Because you, as the people of this god, were actually offering this, their god a service. That if you did not offer sacrifice, your God would go hungry. Your God would starve. Your God is actually dependent upon you for your faithful service to them. And in fact, because your God is dependent on you for your faithful service to them, that if you feed them, if you give these gods what they need, then they will give you what you need. They will bless your fields and your crops. They will bless your women to have pregnancies and births and children and fertility. They will bless you if you bless them. That's what these other peoples believed about their gods. And lo and behold, what happened? 
the people of Israel began to think of Yahweh, their covenant God, in the same way. They began to think that God actually needed them. That God actually needed them to offer these sacrifices because if they didn't, God would go hungry. So God was dependent upon them. That's what they began to think. And they thought because God needed them, well, if they give God what he wants them to give, then God will give us what we want, and he will bless us, and he will protect us. That is what they began to believe. That's the misunderstanding of sacrifice that the people of Israel grabbed and took in from the people around them, the religious, the pagan religious people around them. They began to think of their God like those gods that aren't even gods. And so God, in all his grace and in his mercy, even though he is a terrible judge, a mighty judge, one that comes in fire, in a tempest, God comes to reveal once again to his people who he is. God is the God who created all things. God is a God who is not dependent upon anyone. He is self-sufficient. He does not need anything from anyone. God does not need anything from you. God did not create you because he was lonely. God did not create you because he needed you to feed him or to care for him. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the entire universe. And God says, if I were hungry, which by the way, I never am, I wouldn't tell you. Because every single animal that exists in the entire world is mine. I have a very big refrigerator. So what is God saying? He's saying, you don't know me. You think you know what my favorite piece tea is, but you don't. You don't know me. And I want you to think for a second. Are there not ways that we do this with Are there not ways in our, our hearts, our narrow way of looking at things, that we can begin to think that God, God needs us? That if we do a good thing for God, then God will do a good thing for us. Or maybe even ways in which we think about God and make him a little bit more like us, a little bit more limited. Well, God speaks to us this morning, and he wants to break through all that, and he wants to say, I am not like you. And he wants to say, 
It's a good thing I'm not like you. But if God doesn't need anything, is there something that he wants? Well, in verse 14 and 15, God then offers the people of Israel and us this morning a corrective to our understanding of him and our, um, our understanding of worship. He says, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. So what, what God is saying is, um, yes, I want you to offer sacrifices to me. By the way, we still do that in the New Testament. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We offer our praises as sacrifices. We offer our prayers as sacrifices. We offer our lives as sacrifices. Live to the glory of God. We offer uh, our hearts to the Lord to belong to Him. You see, what's crazy about this understanding that God doesn't need anything from us is that we as limited human beings... We can't understand the idea of being self-sufficient. We can't understand that there is a creature or a, a creator that, that is lacking nothing but would still want something. You see, for us, our needs and our wants are always mixed together in some sort of fashion, even a little bit. But God, he does not need anything. But he wants something. He wants a relationship with us. He wants us to know him. And he wants us to know that he knows us. And so this expression of worship is that what God is saying, what you lack... My people, what you lack in these um, sacrifices is the desire to be known by me, the desire for me to know you. You have crept into a formalism, a kind of formalism, a belief that this is some sort of just transactional thing, but it's not. The heart of sacrifice is the desire to know and to be known. And you can't have one without the other. To know and to not be known is to be someone whose religion is all in the head. To, know, to, uh, to be known and to know is somebody, or and to not know, is somebody whose religion is all in the heart. We need to have the head and the heart. And that's what God is saying here. But God continues to speak. Um, verse 16, he says, But to the wicked, God says. Um, now, we could understand this as God is no longer talking to his people, but he's talking to everyone else in the world. But it's my understanding that because of verses 1 through 6, God gathers his people, his consecrated ones together to judge them. Now who Jesus, whom the Lord is speaking to are the hypocrites. You see, in verses 7 through 15, God is correcting his people's understanding of sacrifice. He's saying, 
I'm not mad that you are sacrificing. I'm mad that you lack the proper understanding of sacrifice. And so you are still participating in, 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 in this covenant, but you are doing so in a very narrow, in a very shallow fashion. But now, whom God is addressing are the hypocrites, the wicked. God is rebuking them. And he says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? He's saying, you recite my laws. You put my covenant on your lips. But you do not believe in them. You are not transformed by them. You do not care for them. This is simply an expression of formalism. It's all outward. It is not a transformational expression of this faith. Uh, you recite my laws, you take my covenant on your lips, but you hate my instruction, and you cast my words behind you. And then he lists off a couple of um, breakings of the Ten Commandments. When you see a thief, you join with them. You, you steal. You break that commandment. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You break that commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceive. Uh, you you uh, give false testimony against your neighbor. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. Um, the family relationships have broken down. And here's the thing um, that these people do. They think that they can forget God and nothing will happen. How many people... In our world today, think they can forget God and nothing will happen. In fact, God, God speaks to us about these people's hearts. These things he's, that they've done, and, and, and they say, well, God doesn't do anything about it. I keep doing these things, but God doesn't do anything about it, right? And, and God says something that's profound. He says, you thought I was like you. But I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. You see, whether God is addressing all the people of the world who have chosen to turn their backs on God, or whether he's addressing religious people who are outwardly going through the motions of religion, but are hypocrites, who do not care for God or his ways or his word, who do not listen to it. This is what God is saying to them. He's saying... You think you're safe, but you're not. There will come a day, there will come a day when you will stand in judgment before me, the judge, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and you will face what you have done. And you will do your time. There is a day of reckoning. There is no one who will get away with any crime, with any breaking of God's law. Consider this, he says, you who forget God. What is he saying? I have not forgotten you. You thought I was altogether like you. I am not. 
You may forget me, but I will not forget you. I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. There is judgment because we have a judge, a perfect judge. And so what does God instruct these hypocrites, these religious people who are only outwardly performing the tasks of religion, who are hiding their true face, their inner corruption from all other people, or whether it be all the wicked in the world who turn their backs on God, who've forgotten God, and who choose to believe that they can go on with their lives, breaking all of God's commandments and breaking all of God's laws and sinning and think that God will never do anything about it. What does he say to them? What does he say? In essence, he says, repent and believe. That's what he says. Verse 23, he who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. And he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. What, what is he saying? He's saying, rather than thinking that you can forget all about me and I'll forget you. Rather than living in your life of rebellion and sin. May I suggest. Turn from your sin. And honor me instead. One is a path towards life. One is a path towards, well, as gruesome as this language sounds, where you'll be torn to pieces and no one will rescue you. What God is saying is he doesn't want anything. Or he doesn't need anything, but he wants our hearts. What God is saying to those of us who think little of him, we must think more of him. What God is saying to us who may be living out a life of sin, but with a religious cloak over it, he knows. And he wants to be known by us. G.I. Packer in his classic work talks about knowing God and being known by God. But in the quotations that I gave you, um, he doesn't say how that comes to be. Well, uh, Psalm 50 may not directly speak of this as either, but the way that we come to know God and, and, and be known by God is through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. The way that we come to a proper understanding of sacrifice is in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. The way that we come to a proper understanding about who God is and how we are to know Him is to listen to the words that Jesus said to His disciples when He said, You see me, you've seen the Father. How can you see me and not know the Father? The way that we come to be known by God and understand that we are known by God is by understanding that by faith in Jesus Christ, 
and his perfect and completed work on the cross and in his resurrection that we're forgiven of our sins, that we now enter into the covenant relationship with God because we're united to Jesus Christ as our Savior because he is, he is God. We're joined in communion with, in union with God through Jesus. The way that we avoid the condemnation that awaits the wicked who believe they can forget God and God will forget them, who live out their lives in rebellion against God, the way that we avoid hell and eternal punishment is by turning from our sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ to be forgiven of all our sins in Him and to receive His perfect righteousness. And so Psalm 50, the mighty one God, the Lord, speaks to us. Speaks to us about our misunderstanding of who he is. Speaks to us about our hypocrisy. But at the end of the day, Psalm 50, God speaks to us of our need for a Savior. And our Savior that was given in Jesus Christ. The way um, that God gets our hearts is when we give our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. So my prayer is that if there are any here this morning who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would go to him and believe in him and find in your relationship with Jesus Christ that great and wonderful comfort of knowing God and being known by him. This is primarily what Psalm 50 is about. God is speaking to his people, clearing up misconceptions about who he is and teaching positively his character and nature. He does this because he wants a relationship with us. And the way he made it possible for us to have a relationship with him is through his son, Jesus Christ. God needs nothing but wants our hearts. And my prayer is that we'd give our hearts to him. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have shown us who you are, and that you have given us the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.